on June 17, 2015. Dylan Roof did the unthinkable. Just 21 years old at the time, he walked into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, joined in on a Bible study class for an hour, and then pulled out a handgun and murdered nine people. Police later uncovered Roof's hate-filled manifesto in which he claimed he just had no choice but to kill black people. Just a few days later, relatives of some of his victims spoke directly to Roof in his first court appearance. He stood stone-faced as they each got up and spoke to him. They shared their tremendous pain and anguish. But then they did something extraordinary. One by one, they offered their forgiveness. You took something very precious from me. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you, said the daughter of one of the victims. The sister of another said, we have no room for hating, so I must forgive. I pray God on your soul. I remember reading those words and feeling so moved by their compassion. And I remember thinking, if God forbid that happened in our synagogue, would I encourage our members to offer forgiveness to a remorseless killer? I don't think I could do it. We Jews have also faced unimaginable evil. And Simon Wiesenthal's memoir, The Sunflower, presents a different approach to forgiveness. Wiesenthal spent years as a concentration camp prisoner during World War II, and he writes about how during his imprisonment while on cleaning duty at an SS hospital, a nurse summoned him to the bedside of a 21-year-old Nazi soldier named Karl. His head was completely covered in bandages, and he knew he did not have much life to live. Karl unloaded his story on Wiesenthal, how he began as an innocent youth, how his parents disapproved of him joining the Nazi party. He confessed that as a soldier, he had herded hundreds of Jews into a house and set it aflame, gunning down those who tried to escape. The soldier grabbed Wiesenthal's hand and said, I had to talk to a Jew and beg for forgiveness. Without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Wiesenthal pulled his hand away and left the room without saying a word. The SS soldier died the next day. Wiesenthal was haunted by his own silence. It tugged at his conscious, conscience, even to his last day. He asked readers at the end of his book, what would you have done? This was not just a rhetorical question. The sunflower was reissued with a second half containing over 50 responses from prominent writers, theologians, and political activists from Deborah Lipstadt to Desmond Tutu, who each tried to answer that question. Virtually all of the Christian responders challenged Wiesenthal's choice and felt he should have forgiven the dying man. 
but nearly all of the Jews defended Wiesenthal's decision. Why such a difference in these approaches? It's not that Jews are a particularly grudge-filled people. We're not. Or that we don't encourage forgiveness. We most certainly do. But Judaism does not expect forgiveness as an automatic, unconditional response to every wrongdoing. To understand why so many Jewish thinkers responded as they did, we must understand what Judaism requires for repentance, for asking for forgiveness. First and foremost, one must ask for forgiveness directly from the person we have wronged. There is no getting away around this. Many years ago, Mike Wallace did a 60 Minutes interview with Chuck Colson. Some of you will remember Colson as the first official in the Nixon administration to go to jail in connection with the Watergate scandal. In prison, Colson was born again. He became an evangelical minister and founded a worldwide prison ministry. But when Wallace asked Colson if he felt any need to apologize to the people he had hurt, Colson responded, no, I've made peace with God in my heart. For Jews, making peace in your heart, or even with God, is just not sufficient. At the end of our Yom Kippur morning service, we will read these words that come from the Mishnah. I'm sure they're familiar to you. For sins between a person and God, Yom Kippur atones. But for sins between one person to another, Yom Kippur does not atone until one appeases the other. If a sin is ben adam lamakom, between you and God, and you've come here today needing to atone for that, you're good. Our tradition says that being here with an open heart on Yom Kippur atones for sins between you and God. Despite some of what we read in the Bible, the good news is God is very forgiving. The bad news is, for most of us, our sins are not directed against God. And we are taught that if an injury is ben adam lachavero between you and another person, then being here and pounding your chest and praying really hard is just not enough. Jewish law instructs us that it's only in a personal encounter with the one we've hurt that we can truly repent. Facing the person we have injured acknowledges that sin is more than some amorphous wrongdoing, but something quite specific done to someone. And we can only begin to repair it when we directly address the person we wounded. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel underscored this point when he responded to Wiesenthal's question, what would you do, with a story about the rabbi of Brisk. The Brisker Rebbe was a great scholar, well-known all around Eastern Europe. One day he boarded a train in Warsaw and found himself seated with three rather tipsy traveling salesmen. They invited him to join in as a fourth in their game of cards, but he said he didn't play cards. Not recognizing this small, 
plainly dressed stranger, the three men on the train grew more and more annoyed with his refusal, and eventually one of them grabbed him by the collar, threw him out of the compartment where he stayed in the cold for several hours until they reached the city of Brisk. Upon arrival, a large group of students were waiting to greet their beloved Brisker Rebbe, and the salesman, mortified, realized who he had offended. He quickly went to the rabbi to ask for forgiveness, but the rabbi declined to forgive him. The salesman begged him again, but the rabbi uncharacteristically turned away. The salesman could find no peace. He came back to the rabbi and said, I'm not a rich man, but I have saved 300 rubles and I will donate it to a charity of your choice if you will please forgive me. But the rabbi refused, even then. Finally, the salesman went to the rabbi's son who was surprised that his compassionate father was not forgiving this man. The son went to his father and asked him why. I cannot forgive him because he didn't actually offend me, the Brisker Rebbe. He never would have treated me like that. He offended a commoner, a stranger. Let the salesman go and ask him for forgiveness. This story helps explain many of the Jewish responses to Wiesenthal's question. In the Jewish tradition, no one has the authority to forgive sins committed against other people. You cannot confess to your rabbi and be absolved of all your sins. Even God doesn't claim that authority. How could Wiesenthal grant forgiveness for murders committed against so many others? While Wiesenthal's story is one of unthinkable, perhaps unforgivable sin, the Brisker Rebbe shows that we are each responsible for asking forgiveness directly for the more typical slights, the daily indignities, insults, and injuries that we human beings do to each other all the time. And when we seek forgiveness, it's not even just enough to turn to the person we've hurt with genuine remorse, we must also resolve not to repeat the mistake again. And we can only demonstrate tshuva gemura, complete atonement, when we are in the same situation again with the same opportunity to do wrong and we choose another path. Complete forgiveness can take months or even years to realize. So Judaism sets a very high bar for repentance. We have to apologize directly and sincerely. We have to commit to not do it again. And we have to actually change. And what happens if we do all of this and we're still not forgiven? In that case, we are told we have to go back and apologize again. And if we're turned away a second time, we have to ask once more. But Maimonides teaches that after the third time, if someone apologizes and has demonstrated different behavior and is still not forgiven, the offender is released from his or her obligation. 
And we who refuse forgiveness, we become the achzari, the cruel one. We become the sinners. The fact that our tradition even speaks of a process by which someone can come to us three times sincerely asking for forgiveness is a testament to how hard it can be to forgive our deepest hurts. Sometimes we find it impossible. Not too long ago, a woman shared a story with me of how her husband was killed by a drunk driver, leaving her widowed with two children. This crime happened 25 years ago, and I asked her if she'd forgiven the man who committed it. And she said, I will never forgive him. I pressed her a bit more on the subject, explaining that I was thinking of a sermon encouraging forgiveness on Yom Kippur. And she said, if you stand up as my rabbi and tell me that I have to forgive that man, I will walk out of the sanctuary. She became my teacher in that moment. I can't say what I would do if I was in her circumstance. But I knew I couldn't stand before this congregation and demand that she forgive her husband's unrepentant killer. And in fact, our tradition would say she has no obligation, that she even lacks the authority to forgive him on behalf of her husband, only for her own hurt. And as I reflected further, I wondered if she felt that forgiving that man would in some way diminish her husband's memory. Who else was going to remember? Because there's something in the nature of forgiving that requires a little forgetting. She was paying a price for holding on to this pain, but perhaps it was a burden she felt obligated maybe even honored to carry. And just as I struggled with what to say to her, I've struggled with this sermon and saying whether or not you should forgive those who have hurt you. But ultimately, it's not my place, and it's beyond my power to instruct you. Judaism will never tell you that you must forgive. Just like most of life's hardest questions, like, what is God, or where do I go after I die? When Jews ask ourselves, should I forgive? Judaism doesn't give answers, but guidelines, wisdom, and agency. We have a choice. Deciding to forgive can be one of the hardest things to do, but so is deciding not to. A woman came to me this year with a story of her husband's infidelity. He had admitted the transgression, cut off the illicit relationship, and shown true remorse. He was committed to prioritizing their relationship, but she just still couldn't forgive him. Her feelings of betrayal and hurt were too deep. They were both truly suffering. When I asked her why she could not forgive, she said simply, I feel like that condones the act, and I still want to punish him. Often the most challenging thing about offering forgiveness is the sense that the offender doesn't deserve or hasn't earned our forgiveness. 
and they might not. But forgiveness is not only or even primarily about what you're giving someone else. It's about what you give yourself. Forgiveness is a decision about how you want to live. It's taking control over how much power you allow someone else's sin to have over you. It's a mistake to confuse forgiveness with justice and to think that withholding your forgiveness is a form of punishment to the person who hurt you. In fact, often the opposite is true. As the saying goes, holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. We know it doesn't work like that. Again and again, I see the burdens that people carry when they choose not to forgive. Pain and betrayal and humiliation can occupy so much psychic real estate in our brains. We hold on to slights we've endured at the hands of our family, co-workers and friends who've excluded us, judged us unfairly, took undue credit, were unappreciative. We've been undermined, cheated, lied to. We have been scarred by emotional and even physical abuse. We have real grievances. And our tradition understands the limits of forgiveness. But today, as the gates are wide open, our tradition would also ask us, what would be possible if we could forgive? On Yom Kippur afternoon, we will read in our machsor the words of Rabbi Baruch of Mezbij. To attain truth, one must pass through gates, each opening to a new question, the last question beyond which one cannot live without faith. I love this metaphor as a metaphor, not just for attaining truth, but for attaining forgiveness. Because we know that forgiveness does not come in an instant. It is a process. It is an intention of unlocking a gate that may feel irrevocably closed, of opening it tentatively, putting one foot in front of another and walking through, sometimes with great effort, all the time asking, is the person who hurt me really remorseful? Can that person really change? And each time we see that person who injured us, each time we have to relive our loss, our shame, our hurt, we stand at the threshold once more and are hit with new questions. Why am I holding on to all of this anger? What burden will I continue to bear if I do not forgive? Could forgiveness be a gateway to a life of greater peace? It is said that when God ascends the throne of judgment on Rosh Hashanah, that God also prays. What is it that God prays for? Well, while sitting on a throne of judgment, God prays for compassion. 
and for the ability to let go of anger so that God can be more forgiving. Forgiveness is an intention and hope. Forgiveness is a prayer, even for God, maybe for all of us.